0: Welcome to the backdrop Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your co-host Matt Constantine. Here's our co-host, the Professor. How you doing, Kevin?
1: We're moving into the summer. I am so excited. Best time of the year in Athens. Um, I love the students. Love working with the students. Love you know the energy they give. But man, when they leave for the summer, Athens becomes the Professor Town, and that's a, that's a, that's a good <laughs> place to be. A professor Town, a
0: Professor's looking to play some golf. Daddy, Daddy needs to have some fun. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. awesome. Well, you, you've secured us a wonderful booking today, uh, Doctor Mo Pickens, Morris Pickens. He works with some of the best uh, in the world. <laughs> he also works with everyone from a, a eight year old beginner to a thirty eight year old, you know, sixteen handicap. And so he he really is becoming renowned as one of the best in the mental game uh for golf so you know he's got major champions zach johnson stewart sink lucas glover keegan bradley that under under his list he's, he's working with a bunch of up-and-comers a few that i think you know professor from georgia and um just really kind of seems like a cool dude i'm excited to to chat with him today what are you looking forward to here
1: you know yeah he's it's golf's a small world he's helped out a several people that i've worked with or just interacted with and i've just heard nothing but great things about him Um, and I know, I know this one's especially important for you on the mental side of things. You're one of the deep divers on that. Uh, so I'm just looking to learn, I'm looking forward to learning from him, seeing what he's got to say about how we can get better and what we can do to put a process in place. I I wonder, yeah, before
0: we saw my library of mental game books, I wonder if he would be like, you know what? You might just want to pick one of them,
1: buddy. (laughs) Yeah, you got to stick to something, right? Now, I do have a fact of the day, though, and, be, and since it's a, we're the interview here is going to be on the mental side, I'm going to take it more to the physical side. So, what do I like to eat, Matt? You grew, you grew up with me um, through college. What, what's my what's my vices? Oh, your vices,
0: yeah, uh, pancakes covered in syrup with uh, whipped cream. Um, back in the day it was Mountain Dew used to be able to house a Mountain Dew. So I'll just,
1: I'll just stick in the sugar category. Yeah. Sweets, right. Sweets, pastries, the whole deal, carbohydrates. So, you know, I'd done really well all year. And then I got off the wagon a couple of weeks ago and I've been back, you know, I was over in Italy eating all the pastries. Um, well, I learned something about that and processed foods as well. That stuff actually makes like tricks your brain and body into wanting to eat more. Is what it does, right? So when you're eating, your body's really looking like, am I getting amino acids? Um, am I getting glucose? Like, are those the things that are happening? And once you get enough, then your body's like, stop eating. Problem with the the sugars and the sweets and the processed foods and all that, it actually literally tricks your body into saying, no, you need to consume more. You're not actually you're not actually taking in what you want to do. So for anybody out there that's struggling with that stuff, no, that's it's not a you problem that's just your body like natural reaction and you got to find a way to fight against that so now i'm back on the like cut out the sugars again cut out the sweets because i just i can't control myself you know i'm, I'm about another yeah another sh- sugar snack away from a, a case of mountain dew so and we can't do that anymore
0: no you gotta come on you you've been you've been doing so well i feel like and uh, don't don't regress on us Is it like, are these companies run by Dr. Evil? Like, is it, are they in the lab designing these products to, to have this chemical that releases
1: in us and says, you need more Doritos. I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist guy, but there's something there. There's, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's why, that's why I love these factoids. Kevin, you're making us all better this year on the backdrop podcast. Uh, You know what? When golf is better, with people. When's that? With community. So, New Club Golf Society is our sponsor of the backdrop this month, Kevin. Uh, There's a whole lot going on in in uh, New Club this season. We got our local chapters in Chicago and Atlanta, and we have a growing national membership and international membership all around the world. For the month of May, you can actually join with a friend and uh, save $200 off your membership for the local chapters and $50 off your membership for uh, our national and international folks. Um, There's the, gosh, there's just so many. I almost can't list all the events that are coming up and releasing right now, but uh, I'll, talk, I'll go with the Founders Cup. We got our Fall Founders Cup, which brings all those groups of members I mentioned together. We'll be at Big Cedar Lodge this year playing Ozark National, Payne's Valley. Um, really looking forward to that with our uh, our partner there, True Temper, will be supporting us for the Founders Cup. Um, but it's just a great group of people that love the game of golf. It, it We play a heck of a lot of match play, the preferred game, the old game and uh and just just fun so check out newclub.golf if you're interested and you're listening and uh fill out an application get it in get in the mix and let's play some some golf professor let's get to this interview with dr mo dr mo welcome to the backdrop.
2: uh great thanks thanks for having me guys looking forward to Discussing a little golf with y'all. Where
0: do we find you at in location this morning? Uh,
2: I'm actually downstairs in kind of my, uh, I don't know, family media room, if you will. And um, so my wife doesn't really like any of the golf stuff around the house. So I got it all down here. So the, the what you're seeing behind me is, I think that's from Zach. But um, so, yeah, just down here in the media room where I got a few trinkets and um a nice microwave and a good ice machine. So, yeah, looks like several needs
1: things to, to be, it. yeah, several things to be jealous of behind you there, it looks like. Yeah. Is that a little 2007 um, victory
0: flag? I'm guessing. Got, yeah. And then, yeah, that's
2: 07. And then the open. Uh, the next one is Stewart's. And then the next one is, uh, I think that one is Zach's 15. And then across the room, that's uh that's the 09 us open with the scorecard above it where Lucas won oh. so that was pretty cool I got the scorecard so so wow.
0: we, we we ran through uh, your your list of of the folks you work with and it, it, it is an impressive one and obviously some major champions in the mix um, I, I I think and this is no offense to any of the other gentlemen but just perception as a huge golf fan. I always thought Zach Johnson was the most tough mental mental game uh, on the planet, and so the, just the the revelation that he works with a mental game coach kind of surprised me, Mo. So could you talk a little bit about like uh, specifically Zach and, and you know is he is is my perception correct? Is he already kind of mentally strong in the game of golf?
2: Yeah, I would say um, I would agree with that. I think he's probably the mentally. Strongest player that I've worked with. He's also very unique in the sense that um, 99% of the people that come visit me or or see me are struggling with some part of their game. And he came and saw me, interestingly enough. I'd been in some practice rounds with him, uh, working with uh, Lucas Glover and Charles Warren and some other guys just for about a year. And so I'd seen him around. And this was 2006. And he had four top fives uh in the beginning of 2006 um up until the US Open so he's playing really good golf and um but he I was literally walking across the range at I think it was at Wingfoot that year I can't remember somewhere and um he's like hey um just wanted to know if you're going to be at Hartford next week and I'm like yeah and he's like I think I want to sit down and just ask you some questions and kind of um talk a little deeper and I'm like sure and so, um, yeah, it was very unusual in the sense that here's a guy who's playing really good. And basically what he told me is I just want to uncover kind of every rock that I can. I'm not sure if this is going to work. So the way we started was, Hey, we're going to try this for half a year. We're going to see if it works. And, and if it doesn't, then we'll kind of go our separate ways, which was fine. Now, the, the kind of interesting part of the story, which most people don't know is I proceeded to help him have not another top 10 for nine months. So <laughs> Uh, I was very fortunate that I didn't get fired because he had four top fives in the six months prior and he had no top tens in the next nine months. But we were really working on his routines and and kind of his mental game. And if changing your grip is like 10 out of 10 on the uncomfortable scale, then changing your thinking is probably like 12. And so it, it can be uh, pretty daunting. Um, I was You know, like I said, just fortunate that he was very mature and professional about it and knew he was getting better. Uh, And then he hit a shot in the Ryder Cup that year. Um, So this would have been 06. It was in Wales. Him and Chad Campbell are playing, and I want to say they're playing Harrington and maybe Paul McGinley, and they're like one up. There's like three holes left. Um, They're going first. Harrington and them are like 20 yards ahead of them into par five. And and he and Chad are talking about it, and he's like, "You got to go. We got to get this ball on the green, put some pressure on them." And um, so it's kind of a shot, and Zach's like, "Okay." And and I mean, he I think he would tell you that like he really kind of understood the essence of the routine at that point, and he just trusted his routine. He hit a great shot in there, like I don't know, twenty feet. They two putted and stayed one up, and then won the match, and and that gave him a lot of confidence. And then. That off seasons when we did a ton of wedge stuff that kind of got him prepared for uh, Augusta in 07. But yeah, so but yeah, I, I would say your take is kind of the same as Tiger's. If you look in Tiger's book, it talks about um, not Tiger's book, maybe Steve Williams' book. I don't remember, but it's it's talking about you know one of the guys that <clears throat> Tiger respected was Zach, just because Z- Zach didn't really care what Tiger was doing and he was just going to stick to what he was doing. And, and, um, obviously most of the time Tiger won, um, but there were a couple of nice times when, when Zach came out on top. So.
0: Yeah. the see, you, you said, um,
1: good. You, you said, the, uh, you said a lot of guys, uh, come to you when they're struggling, right? Zach was obviously different in that way. What could you expand on a little bit? Do, when guys come to you, are they struggling? Do they, uh, do they know they're struggling with their mental game or are they just struggling more in general and they're not sure what to do when they come to you? You know, what do you normally see? No,
2: no, they don't know that necessarily they're struggling with their mental game. They might have some awareness or insight of that, but really they're struggling with their game and they've tried everything else. So they've already changed their driver's shaft. They're fired their caddy, you know, um, they've done other things that they think are going to be helpful. And, usually when people get to me, it's like, okay, hey, I've, I've already switched coaches. I've already tried some other things, but either this shot still bothering me or I'm still struggling with my putting or, I mean, whatever it is, or I'm still struggling on Friday afternoons, that sort of thing. You know, obviously, and, and I should kind of preface that with, um, you know, that is at the higher level and older level. So when I'm talking about those students, I'm talking about kids that are probably college or later a lot of the people that come to me younger than that that are in high school, because I probably work with students. I mean, I do stuff with kids in our camps that are young. But, you know, serious one-on-one probably starts around eighth, ninth grade, right in there. All these players are good players. They can, sh- you know, break 80 at least, um, whatever that means. I'm not trying to say if you can't break 80, you're not a good player. But <laughs> that's, that's who I spend a lot of my time with. Um, and... um you know, those students sometimes come to me just because their parents can see things that they can't see or they're not aware of, or they think they really got a lot of potential and they know this is going to be an issue down the road. Um, just in the sense of, um, you know, basically the way you start off in golf, is pretty simple. You're not a very good golfer. You work on your technique, your mechanics that improves your physical competence. And you just keep going through that loop over and over and over of, get some knowledge from a teacher, work on my swing, my mechanics, game improves, do that again, do that again. And you might splice that into other areas, short game putting, but at some point you start to realize, okay, hey, there's some other things going on here um, that I think are you know, contributing to my score. And I, I'm, I'm realizing that I get off to poor starts and I'm nervous on the first tee or I can't close out a round like I want to, or I play different in AJGA than I do in a high school match. And so that's really where I kind of get involved is when you start noticing some differences and you can't really account for them any longer with execution. So.
0: Um, Doc, I, I, my uh, cohort here, the professor should probably be asking this question because he's the analytics guy, but there's, it, in a lot of the things I've done to improve my game, analytics has come in handy where, you know, if I, if my wedge game is poor, I can look at my proximity to the hole. you know, when I'm taking yep. stats or uh, a lot of facets of the game, you can do that with the mental game. I I've always struggled to, to know if I'm getting better. Cause I, cause I've tried, you know, quite a few things. And, and it's one reason I'm really excited to, to work, talk to you today is because, uh, it's an area that my game you know needs attention is is the mental game as as probably many, but is how do you assess the improvement when it comes to the mental game is it just looking at scores and saying hey how do you know when someone is truly thinking better out on the golf course
2: well i mean that's we could you know <laughs> we could stay here all day and discuss that but i think where i would go with that is um and I ask this question to all my students, is um, when you're talking about stats, the the most basic thing you have to understand with stats is stats tell you where the ball went. That's all they tell you. They don't tell you why the ball went there. So your job is to figure out why the ball went there. So the three of us could all go play and, and all have 34 putts. So let's just take one stat. We all have 34 putts and we all played well the day before and everything's going well, but... What we don't know is we don't really know the root cause of that 34 putts. We're going to assume that it's technique or mechanics because that's the loop that we've been in our whole life, like I was talking about, and that's kind of the way we think at a, at a basic level about golf. But what we wouldn't know unless we really thought about it is, okay, well, Kevin had 34 putts, but the reason he had 34 putts is he missed a couple short ones early, it got in his head, and then he just wasn't committed. He was thinking poor the rest of the day, peaking, And so uh, it was really more of a mental issue thinking over the ball. I had 34 putts, but the reason I had 34 putts is I felt like I was committed. I was going through my routine, but every time I looked up, I'm six feet short or four feet long. Like I just could not dial in the speed. And then Matt, you had 34 putts, but the reason you had 34 putts is right when you were getting out of the car, you looked at your phone, you had an email, you got a home project going on. And The guy that is doing your home project said, hey, I got bad news, but I'm moving away and you're going to have to start all over and you're just like ticked off, right? So we all go out, we all have 34 putts. And then at the end of the round, we all go to the putting green, but it's only going to help one person. It's only going to help me because the root cause of my putting is a putting issue, okay? The guy who's Kevin, who's struggling mentally with his routine and his processing or You, who's basically your anger is coming out on the putting green, that's not going to help you for the next day. Now, it seems to have gotten better because you're going to putt good on the putting green, but the same problem is going to be there the next day because you haven't dealt with the root cause of your putting. You've just kind of masked the symptoms by making yourself feel better on the putting green at the end of the day. So what I do is I basically have this little scorecard. I don't have one with me right now, but I have this little scorecard that I use with players uh, that they would fill out after a round where it would have like basically five columns, if you will, or so. First would be the hole, and then next would be the shot. So it could be your tee ball, your approach, uh, your first putt, your second putt, short game shot. And then it would have um, the reason that you believe. And so then there's like six options. It could be doubt. It could be a distraction. It could be... um, Nerves slash worry. It could be execution. It could be course management. It could be just golf. So let's say you go fill out this card and let's say you have four T balls that you hit poor that day, but not one of them is marked with the E for execution. You don't need to go to the range. Like that's not going to help you. But another guy who has four E's, four, I'm sorry, four poor T balls and his are E's, he can go to the range. So, that's how I would try to help players, or or one of the ways that I help players is literally start tracking in a consistent manner what you believe is the root cause uh, of a poor stat. And then from there, understand how you're going to go work on it. Because if you have a physical or a technical issue, then going to the range is going to be productive. But if you have a mental issue, it's not, because you can never fix a mental issue through physical practice. That's what a lot of people try to do. Um, but that's just not going to work.
0: That's probably, let's that, go back to, uh, uh, a fundamental that I know is, um, is, is big. And I think that'll help explain a little bit even more about what you just said, doc, is, uh, you, you mentioned execution and results. Can you tell us about the four outcomes and how, and break those down for our listeners? Uh, yeah, sure. So anytime you hit a
2: shot, basically what I teach or what I believe is there's, four outcomes um, in terms of, I don't know what that grid's called. There's some sort of matrix or whatever, but it's basically four outcomes, right? And so you could have good execution and a good result and we all enjoy that. You could have good execution and a bad result. So that's where I hit the shot like I wanted, but I thought it was into and out of the right and it was really kind of helping off the right. And so I hit eight iron and it should have been nine iron and it, one hopped in the back bunker, even though I hit it really good, Uh, just misjudged the wind. Or it could be a putt or Or just a bad break. It could be you just hit it right down the middle of the fairway in St. Andrews and it kicked up in the lip of a bunker. So, nobody said golf was fair. So, that's good, bad. You have bad, good. That would be where I hit it in the heel, but it's still in the fairway. Or I caught this chip a little thin, but it still grabbed. Uh, So, now I still got a good outcome, but it didn't come off the way that I wanted. And then you have bad, bad. And so, bad, bad is poor execution and a poor result. Most people play golf where good, good is the only thing that makes them happy. So, they got a 25% chance of kind of staying in a proper mindset and a 75% chance of kind of getting upset or losing their composure or start getting technical or, or whichever way they default. And what you have to learn is you have to learn how to change that grid to where Good, bad. Hey, I did what I wanted to. It just didn't turn out. That's still a positive. Or bad, good. I didn't hit it the way I wanted to. It didn't come off, but that's still a positive. Now I only have one negative. So I have a 75% chance of of maintaining a positive mindset and only 25% chance. And, And we've all played with those people. And people that play where good, good is the only thing that makes them happy. And they're just not much fun to play with. Um, but if you play with someone where bad, bad is the only thing that makes them upset, they're, they're very pleasurable. You know, they, they have a chance to kind of um, maintain their round. They keep their energy. So, I mean, that's basically kind of the way I talk about it. And especially for um, younger kids, you know, 14 to 20, um, you know, they're getting to where they can compress the ball. They can do a lot of things. And then they they can now really start hitting some good goods this is a very important concept for them to understand is, you know, just the difference in those two players. And, um, you know, and you see a lot of different things. Like when we go to majors, you see a lot of good, bad, you're going to hit a lot of good shots that get bad results, right? Just because it just went off the slope or because it kicked in that bunker, you know, Carnoustie or, and so you have to really understand how to have the patience level and be ready for that. And then, you know, the bad, good, bad good is you got to understand that when you're inside the ropes versus when you're outside the ropes, it's a different mindset and outside the ropes, when you're practicing, it's okay to really work on great technique and hit the sweet spot and those types of things. But when you're playing golf, I mean, there's always only one job and that's manager thinking to manage the ball, to shoot the lowest score you can that day. And so I've had two guys, I believe um, who that, that bad good literally cost them their, career on the PGA tour because they were elite ball strikers, but they wanted it to look a certain way, feel a certain way, come out the right window. And when it didn't, it kind of drove them crazy and, um, and it it didn't end up well for them.
0: So. I I shared, I I gotta tell you, I played yesterday and I was just reading about this. Sorry, professor, you can go next, but I just got to tell doc that I was playing with a group and I shared that, that breakdown of those four outcomes and from that point on in our round, and we weren't all having great rounds, I'll just say that. But from right. that point on the round, I, I I sensed a perception change that everybody was starting to enjoy themselves even more. And I think what happened was everybody shifted from, I'm only happy with a, a good good, to I'm only upset with a bad bad. And, and so I just love that breakdown. That is such a great, great fundamental way to look at it.
2: Yeah, well, I just... It really, when if you're going to the first tee and you can get yourself in that mindset, but those are two completely different people. A good, good, only happy, or a bad, bad. And, I mean, those and that and the the guy who bad, bad is the only thing that makes him upset. I mean, it'd be hard to quantify, but he he definitely has, you know, a statistical advantage in my mind of what he's going to get out of his round. You know, I don't know if it's half a shot or a shot and a half, but um, because he's going to keep his energy up. Um, you know, and he's going to do a much better job of maintaining his composure and his ability to think for the next shot. So,
1: yeah, I feel like you're calling out a bunch of the guys I play with. Um, so I was wondering, <laughs> with with a player like that, that's you know maybe overly focused on the bad, bad, um, and the other, you know, the bads are bad, and it's only the good, good that they want. They want. Where do you start with a player like that? You know, how do you start to chip away at that mindset to really get them realizing, hey, 75% of the outcomes are good?
2: Well, one of the places that I would start, I keep a, um, you know, I keep a list of proximity with tour averages on my phone. So if if I'm with a high school or an amateur player and they hit a wedge, you know, they think it's awful because it's 25 feet from 114 yards and I'm like, Okay. Let me just make sure you understand this. I mean, yeah, maybe that's not quite, you're only six feet worse than tour average, right? So some of it is just literally showing them the facts because we all have this perception, um, that good golf looks like good golf on Sunday with the three groups that are in contention coming down. And that's just not factual. And, um, I mean, yes, those guys and what they, I mean, they don't show many bad shots on TV. I mean, maybe if a guy shanks it and they kind of want to just show, Hey, it happens, but they're showing, I mean, if you see a guy and he's two over par and he's 40 feet away, you know, that putt's going in because they're they're showing good shots on TV. And so we just get used to seeing this over and over and over. And we think that that's all they do. And that's not real. So part of it is just getting uh, students to understand you know, it's a game of percentages. Um, It's a game of not making, you know, terrible mistakes. It's not really what you see on TV. These highlight chip-ins and 40-foot putts and, you know, 315-yard drives. And all those things are great. And obviously, they contribute to a good score. Um, But golf is way more about just quit making so many silly mistakes than it is about pulling off these unbelievable shots. So, um, you know, that's at least part of where I get started. And then, and then part of it would be, um, you know, if I'm with a player and, um, and I can see them getting upset a lot and that sort of thing, um, you know, just helping them understand, you know, it kind of depends on where we are. Um, but like, you know, if you hit it in the rough, right? Well, I mean, you still have a play at the green. So it's not like you're behind a tree. I know you hit that in the heel and I know it's in the left rough, but it's not that much different than being 10 yards further in the fairway, right? But you're going to make it worse because you're, you're getting mad. And then, so that would be kind of where I start. And then one of the things that I get into a lot of times, especially if I can see a player defaulting a certain way, And defaulting by that, what I mean is what is your common response after a poor shot? Because some people default into mechanics and overthinking. Some people default into woe is me and doom and gloom and, um, you know, that kind of thing. And then some people default into just anger and rage and losing their composure. And so knowing which way a guy typically defaults can help me kind of help him think through, okay, here's how to process that and and.
0: Kind of get back on track, if you will. Doc, I I heard you. Uh, you you, met, you brought up um, you know watching those last three groups on TV, and mm-hmm. uh, I've been a golf geek as as long as I can remember. So I love watching pro golf, and it's always on my TV. Uh, I grew up one event in particular, the nineteen ninety seven uh, Ryder Cup at Valderrama. I recorded all three days and I watched it over and over again just because I loved the drama elements of golf. I didn't know drama could be that that interesting as a kid or golf could have that much drama. So I, I love that element of it. And I know you've talked about uh-huh. the voice in our head that kind of helps with, with when we're out there, right? And I, I wanted to ask you about this specifically because I think this is something I really, really struggle with is the voice I hear when I'm walking into a 10 footer is basically Jim Nance. You know, it's, it's right to left. He's got this for birdie. He's, he just birdied the last hole. He's bouncing back from a double early in the round. If he makes this, he's going to go on to win this junior tournament, you know? And, and I get myself so worked up into the narrative and, and I, uh, and that's because, because I'm an emotional guy. Like that's kind of my, my uh, personality. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about that and, and, and your thoughts. I know I've I've heard you describe it, I think as a computerized voice, uh, that you coach folks on, but, but what would you do for someone like me that really struggles with every putt is this narrative and and part of a story versus just another putt.
2: Right. Well, I mean, one of the first things I'd say is probably turn off the volume while you're watching golf, but (laughs) um,
0: they're, they're they're pretty, they're better than you think about telling a story, aren't they? (laughs) Oh yeah. They're they're great because they don't want you to switch the
2: channel and start watching the hockey or the NBA playoffs. So, um, they got a job to do. Um, but that's different than the job you have to do. And your job is to kind of keep yourself calm and and unemotional. And so basically what I, uh, the whole idea of talking like a computer is that, um, specifically with putting, what a computer would say, it wouldn't know the, the language of four birdie to go to under, you know, all those things. It would just say, this is 10 feet. That'd be the distance. It'd be downhill or uphill. That'd be the slope and it'd be left or right or straight. That'd be the break. And so every putt is distance, slope and break. And so, and, and you're going to know those things. It's not like, I don't know that I have a four footer for birdie, you know, when I'm playing golf, but I want to be able to put the ball down, read the putt, get all that done. And then right before I walk in, the last thing I want to tell myself is, okay, four feet downhill, left to right, just execute this putt. And if you actually, if you go back to the 09 um, British Open, which is one of these flags behind me, you'll see Stuart Sink just kind of mumbling before every shot. And what he's mumbling is that he's saying the distance slope and break before every putt when he goes in. And, And that's the one he won. He beat Tom Watson in the playoff and, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, and so um, that's what you're trying to do. You're, you're trying to learn how to talk unemotionally versus talk like the announcers do, because they have a kind of a different job than you do. Uh, a funny kind of addition to that. So, <laughs> so that week, uh, Stuart won, right. And people see him talking to himself. And then the next week, He decides he's going to do it. And we we had only started two months prior to that. so we really just honed in on his putting and his long game. He's like, you know what? That worked really good. I think I'm going to do that just in my long game as well. He's like, but I can't describe every shot in my long game. He says, so I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of this idea of stay where my feet are. And just, I'm just going to tell myself firestone, right? So every shot the next week and he's getting a lot of coverage because he's just one, he's telling himself firestone, right? Well, as he's saying Firestone, his his buddies are like, Man, what are you saying? Because it does not look good. You know, <laughs> because they can just see the beginning of the word and they're like, Man, this, I don't know what you're saying, but it don't look good. You need to quit saying <laughs> whatever you're saying. But he was saying Firestone, but I think they had a different interpretation of it. <laughs> so <laughs> it was pretty funny. So
0: was he, was he, why was it Firestone? Was it because it was at Firestone? Or? Yeah, because
2: they were playing in Akron and he was okay. playing Firestone and he's just like, just play Firestone. Just play Firestone. Just play Firestone. Oh, that's right? cool. That's and, so cool. Uh, but but that you know that brings up a. I mean, the, all of this is kind of in the same realm. The whole idea is just to stay where your feet are, and and you know this whole idea. And we don't have t- time to unpack this completely today. We can do it maybe another time. Is just this idea of playing one shot at a time and staying in the moment. I do think that exists, but most people don't know really precisely how you go about that. But one way you do that is. Be great at separating shots, and this shot is totally in isolation from other shots. At least in the emotional component, you you do tie shots together from a course management perspective, but not from an emotional component. And to go back to one of the guys we talked about earlier, Zach. When you when you talk about Zach being mentally tough, I would say that that's kind of um, you know his um, greatest skill, in my belief, is his ability to separate shots. He's just phenomenal at, you know, having a 20 footer for birdie or having a 20 footer for double. And they're the exact same putt. And, um, and he worked at that really hard and, and he wants to have a putt on the putting green and a putt on the 36th hole. And he's got to make it to make the cut be the exact same emotional level. Um, and the way you do that is you, you bring the emotions down for the one that's on the course, and then you ramp the emotions up for when you're in pressure and you make sure you're practicing under enough pressure. Um, but so, because otherwise you end up being two different golfers and there's probably some listeners on here and and the way you end up being two different golfers is, you know, your practice is too casual and too comfortable. And then when you go out and play, there's too much pressure. And so the, the way to bring those together is to make sure that you have a process and a way of talking to yourself and, and a system on the course that is like, hey, I just do it this, and I'm gonna do this, and then the ball's gonna be gone, and I'm just doing that over and over and over. And then, and then in practice, you put yourself under some pressure and and you do some things to really kind of ramp that up so that you know you don't shoot 74 at your home course kind of day in day out. And then we put you in the state am qualifier and you shoot 79. That's how that happens.
1: So. I love one of the things you just brought out there, Doc, and it's one of the reasons I appreciate the type of work you do so much. Is that you know on the technical side, so much of it is just reactive, right? We've got track man, we can look at the numbers, right? We need to do this little adjustment based on what we're seeing or our ball flight tendencies. It's all reactionary. Where so much of the work you do is proactive, right? You're trying to set a process in place, and it's not necessarily reacting to what's occurred recently. It's just like, no, we want to get the brain to where it should be so you can perform. So if you had to give like on the practice side when someone's not playing like one or two quick tips of things they can do to improve their mental approach to the game what would what would it be to really like you said simulate pressure and really emphasize that in their practice so they are preparing for those competitive rounds
2: well the biggest thing you have to do is you you have to take practice and divide it into two parts is what i would call it so a question i get asked more than anything else when i go give talks or I'm traveling It's hey, how come I can't hit it as good on the course as I can on the range? And the honest answer is you're not that good on the range. You just think you are. Right. <laughs> and the reason for that is you hit the same shot over and over. So by the sixth ball with your seven iron, it's pretty good, but that's all built on adjusting to a target. And so you, you hit a shot. It's not that good. You get feedback, you adjust, you get more feedback, you adjust again. So by the sixth or seventh ball, it's pretty good, but that that's not indicative of how you're going to perform on demand. And that's what you have. So what we would just think about being on the range and all the listeners can kind of visualize this. You take your workstation and you divide it into two parts and you have a left side and a right side. So literally, if you were a kid, in one of our camps, we'd have an alignment rod down, not for alignment with your feet, but to split your workstation into two parts. And on the left side, We're going to hit the same shot over and over going to one target. We're going to get the feedback and we're going to adjust because that does help improve our competence and and our kind of motor patterns, right? But that's not bad. It's just incomplete. It doesn't tell us how we perform on demand. So now I need to go to the right side is what I call it. So the left side, think of that as learning. The right side is realistic. And so on the right side, I'm going to change it up. I'm going to go to four or five different targets one ball at a time, and then I'm going to score these on a one to five scale. One is I hit it in the trouble that I'd put out there in my mind. Two is not good, but not necessarily in the trouble. Three is a little bit better. And then five would be like a kick in. So you're you're literally kind of scoring each ball. You're going through your routine. You're making it like you're on the course. And again, the goal is not to see how many fives you can get. The goal is to eliminate ones. and you know, put yourself under some pressure. So, you know, you got a fairway out here and we got trees on the left. Anything left of those trees is automatic one. I can miss it to the right. That's my fairway. And then the next hole, I do a different thing. That would be um, kind of the biggest thing in in a grand scale, if you will, in terms of practice is most people just stay on the left side all the time. And so I truly believe they have a false sense of confidence. They, tr- they truly think they're better than they are because um, all they're doing is adjusting to feedback and they don't have a realistic sense of how they perform on demand.
1: So, I love that. I love that. It reminds me too of the number of people who take breakfast balls. And I try to tell them if they're training to be competitive, like the breakfast ball is the worst thing you can do. Like you need to learn, like lean into that competitive ball and really Understand this on-demand performance. That's that's brilliant, Doctor Mo.
2: Yeah, well, I don't know about brilliant, but um, it works for my guys. So
1: <laughs> it works very well.
0: Uh, Doc, do you, do you have any tips for when you get stuck out there mentally? I, I give, I'll give you an example. Uh, yesterday, I was uh, I felt mentally great. You know, I was, I was thinking through a lot of my, uh, especially off the tee and on the greens. I felt really good for whatever reason, uh, with my wedges yesterday, kind of all the wedge play, I was just a little, um, I don't know, like cluttered up. And, and it was weird because it was just in that element of my game. Right. So I think maybe there's some technique that was creeping in if I'm being honest and probably debating with myself, if that was where I should be. But but the rest of my game felt great. And I, was, I had a lot of clarity on my driver and a lot of clarity on the greens. What, what do you, co- how do you coach your players when, when maybe there's one element of their game that, that they just feel stuck and, and while on the course, you know, cause I'm sure there's things we, we do off the course to, to assist with that. But is there any kind of, I guess, I guess I'm looking for a quick fix, which maybe not, <laughs> is not possible, but is there any, any tips that you have while on the course for you to say, all right, that's that's wake up. That's snap out of this. Well, I think the
2: biggest thing I would say um, is, is don't go down the route of your swing because you can never see yourself swing. And, and your swing will lie to you. Your feel will lie to you. So we all think we do one thing and then we go watch the video and that's not what we're doing. So because you can't see yourself swing, you, you run the risk of, well, I think I'm doing this. But if you guess wrong, well, now you've gotten the, made the problem worse right? Because you didn't fix what was actually wrong. And now you've in- implemented something that you thought was wrong, but it actually wasn't wrong. So now you're just compounding the mistakes. And as soon as you do that one more time, you're now, you're you're made four mistakes. And so it gets real bad real quick. So what I would advise you to do is, and this is mainly, um, in your ball striking, this doesn't really apply to your putting. So it goes in your wedge. And when we say wedges, I'm, I'm thinking fairway wedges. So I don't, I don't know if you're talking about short game, but I'm thinking fairway wedges, but you know what you can't change. Yeah. You can't change your swing or your swing thought. Okay. Because you can't see yourself swing. You can change basically five things. You can change aim. That's the club face. You can change alignment, which is your body relative to the club face You can change your posture. You can change um ball position, upper back, or too far or too close, and you can change tempo, which is really the only thing kind of within your swing. But so those five things, aim alignment, ball position, posture, tempo, is kind of like, okay, these are the things that I'm am allowed to change. And anything outside that I'm not allowed, because those things I can see and they won't lie to me and I can get some sort of sense of that. And then you should have a understanding of like, okay, hey. What are the ones that I typically get off? So for me, you know, what happens to me is I get quick off the ball, that's one thing for sure, and then my posture gets bad. So if if I hit the first poor shot, not a big deal. I'm not a robot, no big deal. If I hit a second poor shot, kind of go back through my mental process, make sure I was thinking what I wanted to. If I hit my third poor shot in the row of the same type, so not like a driver and then a wedge and then a putt, but if I hit three poor wedges in a row, on that fourth wedge, I'm changing one of those things that I'm allowed to change. I'm changing ball position. I'm changing posture. But so it's, it's almost like a pilot where you have like, Hey, this is my checklist. And when this happens, I'm going down this checklist, but I'm not allowed to just do anything that I've read in golf digest or, you know, where I'm not allowed to just go kind of, uh, down any road that I want. It's a very predetermined checklist of This is how I'm going to try and, because again, the goal is not to start puring it. The goal is to manage your thinking, to manage the ball, to shoot the lowest score possible that day. Um, And that's how I would tell you to go about it.
0: That's great. I, man, I love this. Dr. Mo, this has been very enlightening. Uh, I wish we had more time with you, but that means we'll have you back on for <laughs> sure. Um, cause you just, you just sparked a lot more curiosity in me. And, uh, the website, by the way, for everybody listening is drmolearntowin.com. It's a great website, doc. And, and, uh, there's some resources already on here. Is there other things that our listeners can find you when they're out there on either the internet or elsewhere?
2: Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, you could, um, it's the same kind of, I don't know what you call it, handle or name or whatever on Instagram. Um, but definitely the website has a, once you get in the website, it's got this score better video program, uh, which, um, I think is very helpful for a lot of students. It's basically got these videos that are three to five to seven minutes, kind of grouped into three categories on course, practice and prep and off course. So I think listeners could get a lot of that, um, I just this year became a member of Team Titleist, so I'm on the um, Titleist website in terms of uh, their content. I'll be doing some special stuff for them. So, yeah, I would say kind of those three places in particular.
0: Great. Well, we, we know you got another commitment, probably a major champion waiting for you. So, uh, Dr. Mo, really thank you for for being with Kevin and I. We this is This is awesome.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to another time. Y'all have a great weekend.
0: Professor, that was Dr. Morris Pickens, and he was picking us some pretty insightful uh, uh, nuggets there. I wish I would have known, you know, he was at Sea Island when our winter meeting, I would have 1000% set up time with him. I really would have. I, I love his approach. I really do.
1: I think I can tell he has a new, maybe a new client coming his way. Um, I could just, I could just see your brain going. So I'm just going to kick it straight to you. Like, what's what's your takeaway after that? That was a fun conversation. Yeah, I, I had a ton of takeaways
0: from my own game. One thing though, from just like an interview perspective, I, w- w- as soon as we sat down and I saw all the major championship flags behind him, and I just remembered that, like, man, he's worked with you know Lucas Glover, Zach Johnson, Stewart Sink. Uh, Keegan Bradley, I think, is on his his uh his list of guys and and uh Davis Riley. You know, like there's there's some studs, but the major champs part, like th- those guys are are unbelievable golfers. But I don't think when they they won, you know, they were kind of the underdogs. And so I my head started going down this route of we could talk this whole time about what's it like working with those guys to get them over on the biggest hump in the biggest stage. And uh, you know, even post stuff like what did win in that British Open do for Stuart Sink and and how did he deal with the whole, whole kind of like media side of the scrutiny of oh he's the bad guy he's the villain. Like Stuart Sink's the nicest dude on the planet and he was painted as this villain just because he beat Tom Watson, uh, who is what 60 years old at the time. So I I just was so curious about all that stuff. And and you know what is it really like mentally for these guys? Because I think even us watching it and even the people that You know, know these guys. You really don't know what someone, what it's like, unless they really open up about their thoughts and their and their you know what they're thinking. Which this is one man who who that's his job is to talk to these guys about what they are thinking and working through that. So I I would love to have a whole pod just focused on you know walking through these majors for each of these guys and and what that's like to get them to perform at that stage.
1: Yeah, we're definitely going to have Doctor Doctor Mo back on for sure. And that like, that's a great point about Stuart Sink and, and kind of touches on the takeaway I have from talking to Dr. Mo is like for Suey, that had to, that had to change up this whole process to approaching a tournament, right. A pro- to just even thinking through a tournament because of all the extra media demands in addition to any emotional of like, yeah, I did ruin like the greatest story ever by knocking off Tom Watson, right. Like that was going to go down. It's that big thing. Um, and so all that goes to just process for me. Like the thing that weaving through all of Dr. Mo's commentary is this importance to having a process to everything you do, um, especially game improvement. Cause I do think we get so caught up, you know, on the golf blueprint side, we get this on the on the technical range practice side of just being reactionary. What did what happened today, or what do I feel in my swing, and just always reacting. First thing versus no, setting a process in place. And just sticking with that process, and realizing there's going to be up and ups and downs. Um, and I think what he brought up about Zach Johnson is a perfect reflection of that. Zach could have left three months or six months in the working with Dr. Mo because he wasn't seeing results, but he just stuck with the process. And guess what? Ends up winning a couple majors after that um, by just you know going through that little lull that you get sometimes when you are sticking with the process.
0: Yeah, I, I had a a former. Guest of this podcast, Mark Wilson, ringing in my head uh, with some of the stuff that uh, Doctor Mo was saying. Where you know, good golf is boring. That's what you know. Mark uh, said on the show, and 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 I, I hate, I hate admitting that. Professor. Like I, <laughs> I I think about, you know, these narratives in my head are really exciting. I'm I'm I got a great imagination. So I can tell a story about my round. I can tell a story about, you know, my my progress and and the overcoming adversity and all these things. But at the end of the day, I, I think what he said I have to accept, which is the process is what matters. And that ball, I think I he said something so uh subtle that that's also stuck with me. The ball's there, and then it's not. And 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 one thought I've had that has really helped me in my mental game isn't that I'm I'm hitting this ball or I'm 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 too focused on this uh, this object. It's it's sending that object. I, I I'm not in charge of all the other stuff. My job is to send it. And and he when he said that, I thought that was a cool way to uh, kind of get to that point. Which hey, listen, you got your process. The ball's in front of you, and then it's not. And in that process, that kind of takes away from that little pivotal moment. We've all seen people with, you know, the the yeah, Y words <laughs> or or other things that mentally they're blocked at that moment of of impact, right? That's what they're so, so obsessed with that, you know, if you, if you take yourself out of that and just say, hey, there's some grass under here. There's a ball on top of it. It's going to be there. I'm going to go through my process and then it's not. I, I thought that was also pretty, uh, pretty cool. Well, it, it's like he sometimes I think we want our, our, uh, our gurus that's that call column to have these super profound things. I think one of the uh, talents he clearly has is he, he simplifies it. It's not this mystical, mystical thing. It's very common sense. And right in front of us and all of us are, are capable of thinking better on the golf course. And he makes it uh, very clear that that's true.
1: Yeah. That's why, you know, he's the real deal because he, he keeps it simple and straightforward. The other thing, it, it, he talked about simulating
0: pressure. Uh, one great way. It's May. We're wrapping up the first segment of Quest for the Crown for new club members. One great way to simulate pressure. Instead of going out and you know playing your normal group and uh, dropping a breakfast ball, play Quest for the Crown. This counts. This is a com- competitive round that you need. Doesn't matter where you play. Doesn't matter what tee you're on. Doesn't matter who you're playing with. You can be playing by yourself. But if you play Quest for the Crown, which is the largest ever attempted team virtually scored competition, if you're playing Quest for the Crown, it counts. And I, I'll be honest. The other day, I was like, my team was. We were chatting, and and I, I post, I post around, and I wasn't playing well, and I started getting nervous. Like, man, I'm like letting the team down here, and and so I. I kind of refocused, got and I had an awesome back nine and it was because, it, but I felt pressure and I'm playing by myself. It was really a cool yeah. phenomenon. So check out quest for the crown. It's in the mobile app for those that are, are members who are listening and, uh, you know, simulate some pressure work, work on it. Uh, professor great being with you as always great booking with Dr. Mo. So excited. We connected with this guy. Looking forward to having him back on. Thank you everybody for listening this week. We will catch you on the next one.